Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for right, some friends, awesome. Welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from Knoxville, Tennessee, former governor of Tennessee, Bill Haslam. Welcome to the show, Mr. Governor. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me tell you right off the top, the reason I had you on the podcast, and I'm excited to talk to you. A couple, maybe it was a year, maybe it was a year and a half ago, I don't remember, but I had on the podcast a gentleman named Scott Sauls, a wonderful yeah. pastor from Tennessee, and he told me a story about having a gentleman who was in politics uh, on the left and on the right both participate in this sort of civil discussion during service, right. and I thought that is absolutely outstanding, and I even tried to talk with some of the leaders in my church of like how we could replicate something like that. Uh, we don't have any governors at our church in Austin, Texas, but anyway, so I, I love the idea, and so a few weeks ago, I get in the mail a copy of your new book, and I thought, this is too good to be true. Let's see if you are exactly what Mr. Scott Sauls <laughs> describes you as. Well, he's a friend, so he might be a little biased. <laughs> Outside. And so when you guys were uh, living in Nashville, when you were the governor for eight years, uh, right. you were part of uh, his church, right? We went to uh, Scott's church, uh, Christ Presbyterian, and then he became a good friend. And he and seven other guys were in a Bible study that met uh, every Friday morning at the governor's residence. So I, I, I'm not certain if they came for the quality of the Bible study or because the breakfast was really good, but we had a good time one way or the I, other. I was about to say, I'm assuming the, the breakfast is going to be pretty good. It was, it was pretty good. Now, let me tell you one other thing that uh, makes me appreciate you you and your family is I am a Christian, therefore I root for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, as you can probably <laughs> imagine. Um, born, uh, my dad is from uh, Dallas, and I was actually born okay. in Philadelphia, but I was born over Texas soil. And so I've always had like Texas in my DNA, but for a while, I lived in rural Southeast Ohio during a time in which the Cleveland Browns were taken from Ohio. Oh, Yeah. And so that was very traumatic for everyone in Ohio. Even though I was a Cowboys fan, I felt the pain. And so your brother, was, wasn't was he part of bringing him back to Cleveland? Well, it actually already come, came back um, before, and then he bought them after they'd been back for several years. But uh, he and his wife, Dee, are the, are the majority owners of the Browns now. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, uh, it's a roller coaster ride owning a pro sports team. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. That sounds kind of stressful. Um, yeah. Well, a lot of people, you know, uh, the good news is a lot of people care deeply about pro football. The bad news is a lot of people care deeply about pro football. Yeah. My, my father-in-law is a high school football coach in Texas. He's retired now. Okay. And so we used to always joke that the thing that our work have, have in common is that the people who sit in the seats always feel like they can do our job better than us. Yeah. I actually laughed. It was like being governor really did compare to owning the pro team in the sense of, it's very much in the public eye. Everybody has an opinion and, you know, people either, they either like you or they don't, but they have an opinion. It's not like, so everybody you bump into says, oh, I know him and here's what I think. Yeah, that, um, yeah, that seems a lot. That seems like a lot. So anyway, all that to say, I probably am not going to own a team now after that advice from you. So thank you for uh, steering me clear of that. <laughs> um, okay. So the, uh, so you wrote a book and it's entitled uh, Faithful Presence and, Again, I had this picture built up from uh, Scott Sauls and his description of what you guys did. You and Michael Weir, uh, Michael Weir, who worked uh, for Obama and right. um, obviously other side of the political spectrum from you. And then I get the book and it seems like you describe what Scott was talking about. So it felt like you lived up to what Scott had described you to be. Um, and so let me just be quite blunt. I, I typically don't have political figures in the podcast because 
it seems that my work as a pastor is exponentially harder because of the political divide in our country. Yes. And it seems like you're trying to find a way to move past that and move beyond that. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair. I'd even, I maybe even go a step further. Okay. Like I said, it's no secret that the country is at each other's throats. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're not only, we're evenly divided. I mean, the last like eight presidential elections in a row have been decided by single digits, the longest streak in the history of the country. So we're, we're divided, but we're not only divided, but we're mad about it. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm mad at the other side, not, not just I disagree with them, and I'm even contemptuous, and I even doubt their motives. Today, yeah. this is interesting. In the U.S. today, there's something they can measure called motivation attribution asymmetry, which is just a big word for saying, I doubt your motives. And uh, mm-hmm. not only do I think you're wrong, but I think you're motivated wrong. That, that diff- the motivation attribution asymmetry between Republicans and the Democrats in the U.S. today is greater than that between Israelis and Palestinians. Wow. In other words, we not just disagree, but you've got bad motives. So th- that's where we are as a country. My my rather you know bold um, premise of this is, what if? Christians could be a part of solving that divide. And I'm afraid that hasn't been true of us in the past. We've actually, I think, contributed to the divide. We've, we've entered the public square in just the wrong way. But, um, you know, James has, there's a verse in James that talks about, you know, earthly wisdom. And he talks about wisdom that's from above. And he says, wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, uh, gentle, open to reason, sincere, and impartial. Well, I don't think that's how people would describe believers in the public square. Yeah. Now, this is not a call to mushiness, and we're not supposed to have positions on things we believe in, but it is a call to humility when we enter the public square. Yeah, uh, one of the things that, that stood out, one of the many things that stood out about the book to me is you were talking about ACA, which is commonly referred to as Obamacare. And right. you have the line where you go, I don't think my position on this is the only position a Christian can have. Right. And it seems like that's not the rhetoric we're typically using. It's not on either side, right? But I mean, here's there's certain things we know that we're called to be in the public square. We know that we're called to be humble. I mean, which is, you know, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, period. Okay, that's really clear. There's other things, you know, we know we're supposed to to help feed the poor. We're not told how to do that. Uh, and so those things that are clear biblical injunctions, we should be strong and firm on. But the others, I don't know that we can say this is the Christian position uh, on the Affordable Care Act. Like I said, there's there's a lot of things that I thought were, it was, you know, well-intentioned, but a lot of um, things I thought I personally thought they were off target. But I certainly couldn't say my position is the Christian position because there's just not enough scriptural uh, backing for that. Yeah. It, it seems like that wouldn't play well, though, to say that my position isn't the only position. Is that fair? Well, it, you know, it's, I think, unfortunately, that's how believers have been seen in the public square as, you know, th- there are certain issues, again, on, on issues of, you know, that I think Scripture is really clear about, but there's others that it's not, and— I think it. I think it's actually a breath of fresh air if we came in saying, "Here's what I think," but you know what? I might be wrong. And it's part of the point of the book is this: as Christians, you know, Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means we know we could be wrong, right? I, yeah. I, I've messed up a lot of things in my life. 
So I might have messed up my particular view on this political issue. Yeah. In the book, you, you make this statement that m- Americans typically think politics is too influenced by religion. And as a pastor, I feel like my religious community is far too influenced uh, by the political process. Yes. How do you think humility could help um, assuage that sort of like pain that we feel, whether we're in a religious community or outside a religious community, feeling like politics yeah. and religion are, are too intertwined? Yeah, I, well, first of all, I think, I think you have to start with this and say, um, is your politics driving your faith? Or is your faith driving your politics? And for too many of us, our political positions are determining where we end up in our faith. And I think it's exactly backwards. So, you know, I think the other thing is a little bit of humility, realizing, listen, my book is about the importance of of, of the public square. Okay. But I think also the humility needs to come in that, um, that's not, that's not the, the real way that things get changed. You know, the, the, the English, uh, writer Samuel Johnson said, uh, uh, of all the things, um, of all the things the heart, uh, must endure, how few the things that Kings or laws can cure. Yeah. Okay. So of those things that are our real issues, the, the heart issues, Politics is not going to solve those. I always said we're, we're a lot better at fixing potholes than we are at fixing broken hearts. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds about right. But it seems would – it would it be fair to say that, that many of us put on you, you as a political figure, the expectation that you are to sir, uh, uh, you know, fix and undo not just the, the potholes but the broken hearts? I think that's true, and one of the concerns I have for where we are as a country right now is this thought that – Every problem somebody out there should fix. I've got a, I've got this problem. Somebody should fix this for me. Yeah. And it's just, I'll be honest with you, the political realm is not set up to cure those problems of the heart. So we, we spent a lot of time on education issues when I was governor. And Tennessee made great progress. We were the fastest improving state in the country in education in K-12. But I also realized that we can put all the, the right policies in place. But every day in that school, through those school doors, kids walk in whose parents are getting divorced and parents are dropping off their kids and they're battling opiate addiction and keep going through the list of things. We're not going to, we can put all the right education policies in the world in place and put all the money in place. And we're still not going to solve those problems. Where do you think those problems get solved? Well, again, I I think it's, um, that's, again, if they're issues of the heart, don't go looking to the Republicans or Democrats to fix those issues. That's where I think people of faith step in and we become that salt and light that we're supposed to be. And um, the, the idea that we can push that off to the political realm, just it, it isn't biblical and it's not realistic either. Yeah. What do you mean it's not realistic? Well, it just people, the, the arguments that are happening in Washington, D.C. right now, are not going to solve the fundamental issues in our families. Okay. They're just not. I mean, that's hopefully the work that you're doing in, uh, in your church as a pastor. Hopefully that's what not just you, but the people, yeah. the people in your flock are doing as well. They're seeing themselves like the real issues with, with our neighbors and with ourselves um, are not things that we're going to legislate our way out of. Yeah. 
one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, being at an event where um, Obama was in office, and yeah. you, you talk about uh, something about the it was uniquely American because of the diversity at the event. Right. And so you value the beauty of what America is and that it can honor the diversity that different groups and different people, different perspectives all can bring together. And obviously when you're talking about uh, one of the unique things about that event was obviously you see different races there. And when, whenever you talk about race, here's, here's a conversation that happens um, over and over again. And tell me if you've heard this before, but you say uh, all people are creating the image of God. Everyone on the left and the right will agree with you. Uh, racism is a sin. We need to eradicate that. Everyone agrees with it. Everyone gets on board. And then you get to the part where someone says, yes, we need to undo the systemic ways in which racism has permeated into our culture. And then you get a divide where some people say, I see the systemic ways that racism exists. And then others will say, well, this is just a hard issue that we need to deal with there. And it seems like right down the middle, the the power of politics has divided us where we have to stop and go, it's either hard or it's systemic. I actually think you put your finger on some on a discussion that the whole country needs to have what you just said, because um, I think there is systemic issues with almost all of our institutions, whether it be the church or business, the military, government, you name it. Uh, There are systemic issues that have to be looked at and said uh, and to, to say, is this causing uh, a lack of justice? Uh, along the way. Okay. And I think that is true. But on the other hand, it's also really easy to say it's a system problem. It's not an individual problem. Uh, you know, the, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn has a line that I love. It says that the line between good and evil runs, does not run between countries or races or you know, he goes through a, a list yeah. of things. It, says it runs right through the middle of every human heart. And yeah. so I love that one. I, I have to, I teach some college classes and uh, the students are always really eager to talk about systemic racism. They're a lot less eager to talk about issues of their own heart. And this isn't an either or it's a both and. And uh, one of the points of the book is how do we look for justice and mercy? Because all of us, you know, the, the people walk marching in the streets and, we all would if it was a when it's a cause we care about, and we're saying you know no justice, no peace. Well, but we all know that within that we need mercy, right? I, I want justice, but I, I know I need some mercy for myself too. Yeah. Why do you think mercy is so much harder to ask for than it is to ask for justice? Well, I think a lot of us we justice is something we can demand of other people. Mercy is uh, something we that we know, or hopefully, we hopefully know we need, but too many of us act like we don't. In other words, I'm demanding justice of you, um, but within that, I, I know that um, if I'm going to demand justice from you, I'm also need I'm going to need to grant you some mercy too. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if we're having these conversations about the systemic change that needs to take place regarding race. There is. An understanding that we have to deal with both the uh, uh, again, I love the line: the line of good and evil is never between us and them, but it's always right down the, the middle of the human heart. To acknowledge that there, it is not either or; it's both and. And I need to bring my own uh, humility to the table. Say, I, I need to learn. I need to listen from from both perspectives on this. 
how do you think the church can change that attitude that can breed its way into the larger cultural conversations? Well, I think part of it comes from this is one of the points I make in the book is um, being just and merciful at the same time is a lot harder than you think it is. And the example I gave is when you're governor, you have the power to grant uh, pardons and uh, commute sentences and uh, give off, give judicial release really almost without um, without, without limits, uh, as long as you're not selling that pardon, you can, yeah. to, uh, most governors of most states could say, empty the prisons tomorrow. And as long as they're not being paid to do that, that could happen. Okay. So the, the judge, the, the governor has incredible power. And I thought when it came time to look at requests for pardons, I would be able to do that. I'd be able to look at it and I could be just and merciful at the same time. And I figured out, I found out it was a lot harder than I thought. Um, you'd mm-hmm. listen to it. You'd listen to, you know, a certain part of you would say, oh, yes, this person definitely uh, deserves a pardon. And then you'd get a little bit more into it and say, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's just or not. There's a whole lot of people serving longer time than he or she is for that same crime. My point of that, that it's just it was way harder than I thought it would be. Yeah. Here's what Christians can add to that. We actually serve a God who uh, modeled what justice and mercy combined look like. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's what the picture of the cross is, right? You have a God who demanded um, a sacrifice for uh, for the way we've acted. Mm -hmm. uh, And then he, he also had the mercy to send his own son to be that sacrifice so that picture that we have of justice and mercy together, I think should enable us to be people who, who give both. Yeah. Yeah. As you're telling the story of uh, having the responsibility of pardoning people, uh, remembering a study, it's in the book, uh, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. It's a fascinating book, but it talks about the study that was done of Israeli judges who were yes. uh, parole judges. And so the, the longer they went and the, basically the, the farther they got away from eating, the, the less likely someone was to get, you've, you're familiar with the study? Yes, I read, yeah. Yeah, and so how, you're making that decision, you go, my own humanity, like just the basic need to have sugar, blood sugar, is going to dictate this person's life. That's got to be overwhelming. It's the, and again, it's part of the humility that comes from it. You realize like, you know, because of the way the government's set up, whether it be that, deciding whether you're going to pardon someone or um, setting up a budget you know, for, that's going to impact, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. The, a sense of humility with that is what you have to have because you realize, mm-hmm. like, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I can I can barely make the right decision about, you know, whether to wear a sweater or a coat today to work, you know, uh, making this, these decisions. There's a there's a really good chance I'm not going to get it right all the time. Yeah, I just had a. Uh, not so easy conversation with someone who was heartbroken because I, I invested a lot of political capital in talking about one issue over the other. And the other issue yeah. that I omitted was one that was very near and dear to them. And I, I listened to him talking and I go, honestly, you're right. Like, I, I don't have any way to disagree with what you're saying. And, you know, I'm really saddened that it affects you this way. Um, right. So I, I, I imagine humility is the only thing any of us could do in a situation where that is your reality over and over again. I, I think it's, uh, again, 
I think what it's interesting when you said that because I think if if you were to swap jobs with the governor for a month, uh, you'd be surprised how similar it felt, right? That was a friend. That was somebody who was disappointed that you'd chosen to talk about one issue over another. It might be uh, a pastor who people are saying, why are we spending so much, sending so much money to overseas missions? We should be spending that on our middle school students no. or pick, pick what or you know, our, our choir is too contemporary or they sing too many old hymns. I mean, it's, you're not choosing between good and bad often. Yeah. You're choosing between other valid competing constituencies. And that's where being a governor would feel very similar to being a pastor. Uh, okay. I never want to do that. Um, so don't, don't put that in the universe. I don't want that to ever happen. Um, I don't want your job. Uh, but again, it, it's people you're dealing with people. I've had conversations with friends who run a gym and the, the politics of, you know, 50 people at a gym or hundred people at a gym. It's, it's not different from the politics yeah. of, you know, running a church, which, and, and it comes down to people. Like we're all people who are trying to figure out, you know, what the right thing to do is. And, our world doesn't always make it very conducive to have that sort of humility. And one thing you acknowledge in the book that is more divisive than uh, reconcil- reconciliatory is um, cable news. Yeah. And you, you tell a story about the shortest interview you've ever done. And you had this, uh, this negotiation where you changed some policy. And uh, you get on there and uh, the host, uh, in the book you say it was Fox News, they expect you just to become very cantankerous and uh, just trash the other side. And you're like, nah, we, we worked it out together. And they were just flabbergasted that you, you, you were kind to each other. Is it, isn't that reflective of how low the bar is for sort of like working together? Well, I think that that's point one. And then point two is here's what we all have to realize when we watch the news is they're, they're businesses as well, okay? And, mm-hmm. and they're in a difficult business. And the easiest way to get you to keep watching me or reading my, my newspaper, whatever it is, is if I can get you outraged about something that I yeah. present and you're like, I can't believe that. That makes me so mad. And then you want to watch again to find out, you know, always if I'm on your side, right? So you want to, you want to, they want to stoke your outrage so that you will continue watching. And that's unfortunately the business model of most cable news today is mm-hmm. I'll, I, you're going to, you're going to be attracted to whatever you watch or read because they're saying things that you already agree with. That's, that's how confirmation bias works. Yeah. And then I keep you as a listener uh, or a viewer when I can get you outraged about things that the other side is doing. And, uh, when, when I was a couple of times I was on a news show and you know, it was, it was not a, there was nothing to provoke outrage. Well, after a while it got kind of boring and they just moved on. Yeah. What was, what was your relationship with that process? Because obviously part of your job requires you to do spots like that where you have these short form interviews in which they're trying to do this. And you know that it's deleterious for your constituency for, I mean, for the entire country. Um, how, how did you view that? Cause obviously you don't want to play the game, but yet you're still on the show. You are. So, I mean, you're obviously still trying to make the point. So I, I would still try to make the point. Here's why this policy we just enacted is really important. And here's why people should care. And I think that the problem is that we all need to be aware of today is um, the, if you're in politics, 
it's easier just to remember the, the the commercial. I'm not really a doctor. I just play one on TV. Yes, sir. Well, it's almost easier to play. I'm not really a senator. I just play one on TV. So I can take these positions. I can do things that will attract a lot of attention, but I'm never about solving the problem. I mean, we elect people to solve problems. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't always get as good of, uh, it's, it's not as, the, the, the media ratings aren't nearly as high on solving problems as they are on stoking outrage. And it, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that the way you get the job isn't the skills you need to do the job. Really well said. So uh, if you think about campaigning, campaigning is about uh, being able to persuade someone uh, that you're the right person. That may or may not have anything to do with solving problems. And the other thing that kind of amazes me in, in these political offices is people think, oh, well, you know, he or she's a governor, then they should be a senator next. Well, those two jobs really have nothing in common, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of them is an executive job. One of them is a legislative job. The only thing they have in common is how you run for the office. Yeah. This is a terrible uh, metaphor, but it seems like dating and marriage. Like, w- w- what what makes you date someone isn't the things that make your marriage good. Uh, but you know, no. I, well, particularly like, hey, we've been my wife and I've been married for forty years. The reasons I initially liked her, I laugh about now because there, there's it's nothing about that that I really appreciate her, uh, uh, in kind of through the yeah. you know through the the uh, the period of being married forty years. So. It's not always some people probably date wisely and they they look for those things. But most of us as 21 year olds uh, or, or when we're younger, um, yeah. like, oh, man, she's beautiful. And, uh, you know, I, I love the clothes she wears or I love her friends. And none of that matters too much 20 years later. Yeah. Yeah. No, the reason that uh, my wife decided to date the guy from bowling class who didn't get stressed out about the exam is not the reasons uh, that she appreciates me 20 years later. Right. Um and maybe they're the exact opposite, but nevertheless, um, before we digress too much, let's get back to the book. I don't want to talk about yeah. my my marriage problems, um, which I don't have any. I'm very happy with my uh, <laughs> Okay, the, the title of the book is Faithful Presence. And Actually, this is an intervention, and your friends asked if I would. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's what Scott, Scott set this up, whole thing for. Yeah, that's yeah, fair. That makes sense. Um, the, uh, the book title comes from a um, passage from Jeremiah 29. And or, or a text that heavily influenced when you were running for mayor, right. and right. Uh, the idea that you're an exile, but you you set up your residence there, you set up uh, as exiles, and I, and I love the metaphor. Like obviously we are, uh, you know, strangers and aliens in a foreign land, and right. as people of the kingdom of God, we now reside in Earth, and so there's always this level that we're you know disconnected. But you talk about there's three tensions or kind of three pitfalls of how we engage with the political process. We can be hostile, we can withdraw, or we can assimilate. Right. And as I hear those three, I feel like hostility, yes, withdrawal for sure, that, and that would be the one that I'm far more likely to struggle with because I think the one that overall seems to be the, the plague of the church is assimilation. Yes. Would, do you think that's the, the front runner right now? You know, I guess, although, I mean, in, I, I see us actually taking all three of those reactions on. We can... Um, uh, we can be hostile to the, like the others. I mean, there are a lot of Christians, if you look out there, uh, we're, we're, we're encouraging the outrage as much as anybody else. And we've become hostile toward, uh, oh. that we're living in. Uh, and so the other side are bad guys. They're bad guys with bad yeah, motives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so we become hostile toward them or 
the, the, the withdrawal, I, I see a lot of people do that. Like, oh, sorry, I didn't turn my phone off. Uh, uh, I just, uh, you know, th- this is all too much. I'm going to take my family and me, and we're just going to live in our own, you know, mm-hmm. our own little secluded world. Uh, and then assimilation, but just it's just too hard. I'm just going to become like the world, and um, it's it's hard to, uh, you know, the the, the passages from Jeremiah 29 where you know the, Israel, the Israelites are kept ca- are captive in Babylon, and I always tell people like, if I'm captive somewhere, you come get me. But Jeremiah's words were, you know, seek the peace of the city where you've been called, for in its welfare you will find your welfare, and. I think that's the that's the model for how we're to engage um, in this world where we are aliens and strangers. Yeah. One of the things that uh, it's been said is, uh, you know, many Christians early on wanted political power to enforce their morality. And now Christians are willing to give up their morality just to hold on to power. And it, it seems like there's this like this assimilation, like, you know what? Um as long as we're in, in charge, as long as we have influence and power, then everything's going to be okay. And what we end up doing is we assimilate to the way of the world, and we think power is more important than holding on to our witness or our credibility. And so maybe that's why I see assimilation as the big one. I, I, I mean, I, you're probably right. I mean, if you had to, if you had to, if you had to stack rank them, you're probably yeah. right. Um, it, it's uh, to me, it, there are way too many believers who have said. Okay, maybe the way we're acting isn't ex- exactly the way that Christ asked, asked us to act, but these stakes are too high. This matters too much. So therefore, I'm going to be the one that's going to send the flaming message um, on social media. I'm the one that's going to um, say things uh, through the internet that I would never say to you in person. Uh, and We've become just like everyone else when the one thing that's clear, I mean, we talked earlier about some things that aren't clear, like what's the biblical position on on uh, tax rates or the Affordable Care Act or some yeah. other things. Uh, but the one thing is clear, that is clear is that we're supposed to be different. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to be like everybody else who's just trying to own the other side on social media. Yeah. As someone who's... I feel far more tempted to withdraw because I see the hostility that goes between left and right. I'm like, I don't want to be a part of that. And then I see the way that assimilation happens. One of the things that was really heartbreaking for me is there was a a book that I read when I was in grad school and it talked about how, you know, the, uh, the American church has gotten too in cahoots with one political party. And so that, you know, God's politics isn't left or right, but you know, it stands outside. And then I found it to be really compelling. It really shaped kind of my understanding of a political theology. And then I see the same person eventually evolve into just joining the other political party. And you go, wait a minute, like just because we say that God isn't, a Republican doesn't mean that all of a sudden God becomes a Democrat. And so I, like, I'm like, I, I see this and I want to withdraw. Now, w- one of the encouragements you make in the book is to be a faithful present. You have to be present. What does it mean for someone like me who, who feels more apt to, I want to withdraw more, that how can I instead be present to be the witness that maybe God has called me to be? Well, I think the, the, the you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, to, to borrow a really old phrase, it, it's hard to be salt if you stay in the salt shaker. <laughs> And on these, uh, you know, the, the reality is, while we talked earlier about that the things in, that, have, that are decided in Washington aren't going to be the things that address the issues of the heart, 
On the other hand, if you really do think that government matters and who we elect matters, and I do, I mean, one of my biggest takeaway from being in office was, wow, it matters a lot more who serves than, than I thought it did before I was in office. Why is that? Why does it matter more? Well, for this reason, uh, if again, we're part of, we're supposed to, as believers, we're supposed to care about the common good. You know, it says, yeah. you know, the Lord sends his, his rain on the just and the unjust, the, the, the sun to shine. I forgot the rest of the verse. But the point is, God, God so loved the world. Okay. Yeah. yeah of he so loved um, this world. We're supposed to care about this common good, and we're supposed to want this world to look a little bit more like the world that's to come. And if that's true, then uh, government has the power because of the decisions it makes. It can leverage things to change in ways that you or I as individuals can't. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the what I saw is, I mean, when we decide like, hmm, I wonder if we can put a program in place to let technical school and community college be free to everyone in the state. And that would give some people a real chance for opportunity that they don't have now. And so we were able to do that. Well, if I'm Bill Haslam business guy, I, I can't do that. I mean, I could get some people to maybe give some money and maybe we could do that for a while, but we couldn't put a place, a program in place that I could tell if you have a newborn baby born, you know, last night, that child is going to be able to go to community college or technical school free in 19 years. Wow. That, that's the difference that government can make. And it's a yeah. it's another way to serve. Yeah. You make this, uh, I don't know if you came up with the line, but it was very uh, like informative to me. Uh, as someone who lives in Austin, Texas, and so Austin, you know, someone compared it. One of, uh, uh, guy, a friend of mine from Lipscomb said, you know, Nashville and Austin are similar because, you know, you have university towns in which uh, the political breakdown of those in this town, this university town, is different than the ones outside of it. And so Austin, right. uh, especially as we're navigating um, – COVID-19 protocol is that we have a lot of like people in the city who see things one way and then outside who drive into our church who see it differently. And you, the language you used was the uh, Trader Joe's versus the Cracker Barrel people, which is a hundred percent right. It's so right on. And so there's this divide between uh, rural and urban that if if you're more likely to go to Cracker Barrel, you see the world one way and you're more likely to go to Trader Joe's, you see it a different way. And especially with like COVID-19, especially in our churches, all of a sudden there are vastly different opinions on how to go about doing this. What do you think we can do to help navigate that sort of urban versus rural divide? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a really keen thing to be aware of. I mean, the, it's a, Nashville and Austin are like very, very blue cities in the middle of red states. And so you, you have people and companies who have moved to Austin um, because of Austin's uh, atmosphere that um, might not fit with the rest of the state. And uh, one of the things that we have to realize is it, because we, the America tends, we're, we're all moving to live near people who are like us. Yeah. So now we get to choose our own news and you watch the news that reflects. We, we, we already ch- pick churches of people that look and think yep. like us. And now we're doing that in how we live. And so the danger, what we have to remember is it's really easy to think everybody I know thinks just like I do because hmm. I watch the news, the people I go to church with, the people that I shop with, the people in my neighborhood. They, everybody thinks this way. What are the rest of these idiots thinking about? Uh, and the truth is, everybody doesn't think the way you do. Uh, and you need to realize that 
you've probably chosen to live close to people who think like you do, but they, there's a, there's an, you know, like I said, the country's pretty evenly divided. Yeah. Uh, and so the first lesson is to think is to realize that like, every, I, even though most of my friends think and look and act the same, that's not true of the whole country. Yeah. And it's easy to just digress into those sort of like stereotypes about the other groups of people. Um, right. I, once I, I heard some people say, uh, you know, those Democrats, they don't care about the poor people at all. They just want to like, you know, you know, uh, enforce certain legislation, but they don't actually care about poor people. I was like, Hey, you need to come up on Thursday when we do our food pantry. There are a lot of Democrats in there. And then I hear someone say, you know, Republicans, they don't care about immigrants. I'm like, um, the, the people who have, um, the expats from Africa who are refugees that are part of our church. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans who are driving the vans, who are helping them get their driver's license, who are in their lives and sharing their, and, and they're not what you assume. And I, I love that the witness of our church and many other churches is that you sit in pews with people um, who vote different than you imagine and see things different than you than you do, yet the way they act doesn't live into the stereotypes that you have. And the longer that we live in these silos in which we listen to the same news and live next to people who think the same way as we do, all of a sudden we just have these scarecrow arguments about what the other side is like, and there's no way for us to have real community anymore in our country. Yeah, you actually nailed it. So I think the interesting question, whether you be a pastor or you're in public office, is what, what, what do you do about that? How do you get folks? And one of the things that I try to encourage people is you have to make a conscious effort to be in discussions with people who don't think the same way that you do. Mm-hmm. And I think if we'll do that as believers, I actually think that will help us to uh, to think, okay, here's somebody else that I you know, uh, is trying to faithfully walk with God. Uh, they see the world really different than I do. Let It's worth being in a active discussion with them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, early in the book, you make the uh, observation that most Americans don't have what you would call a political theology. W- what do you think a political theology is? How would you d- describe what that is? So uh, I think it's, the, it's a theology of how we act in our political engagement. So I assume your church has student ministries of some type. Uh, yes, okay. Sir. And the, the outcome of that student ministry is, not, I bet, is not to, how do we make, have all of our middle school students make all A's? That, no. That's not, it's not about the, the outcome of the endeavor they're engaged in. So if you have a business person's ministry, it's about how, to, how do you help them walk faithfully in this place that God's called them to. Mm-hmm. It's not about how do you set up your business so you will make more money. Yeah. Okay. It's about how do you act within that? We have not had very much discussion, if any, about what do we, how do we act in our political engagement? We do have people that say, okay, well, here's what I believe on abortion issues, or here's how, what I believe on marriage, or here's what I believe on religious freedom. We talk a lot about some of those issues. We don't talk about what would it look like to faithfully walk as you engage in the political arena, either as a candidate or as a supporter of a candidate, or maybe just as an engaged voter. Yeah. It, it seems that most of <clears throat> excuse me, most of my discussion about politics these days are based around don't be cantankerous. Uh, don't be hateful to the other side. See the image of God in those who look different from you or who vote different from you. And it seems like that has to be the centerpiece of a Christian's uh, political theology right now because it is such a, as you would say, like the, it is a foreign witness 
from what we're experiencing right now. You got it. And, and I'm, 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 I'm thrilled to hear that if you are actually spreading that message from the pulpit, because not enough people address it. And part of the reason I wrote the book is one of my experiences from being in office is um, the church doesn't always um, comport itself very well when it comes to public issues. We're not, we're not trying to listen to the other side. We're not realizing that we could be wrong. We're not, real, we're not approaching it with humility, and we're not actually, you know, James says we should be impartial and sincere. In my mind, that means trying to get to the best answer and not just my answer. We, we hmm. approach the public square with, my job is to convince you that I'm right. But I think scripture would say, no, our job is to, how do we get to the right answer? Yeah. I think you said it really well. It's like, we typically think it's, how do I get to my answer instead of the right answer? Those are two different things. And when you start asking that question, instead of going, like, this is our answer, this is what our group says is the right answer, all of a sudden people start to question your participation and, like, how committed you are to your group. And I I know in the book you mentioned how you were referred to as a rhino, which I, like, okay, that's an interesting acronym, but Republican in name only. One of the things that we've seen recently uh, is Beth Moore has uh, has taken a lot of heat because as a Southern Baptist woman up until uh, you know a few days ago, she found herself criticizing um, you know tr- specifically Trump, and all of a sudden people said, well, you're not really you know all of a sudden you're a liberal, you're not one of us if you're not taking the entire group's position on this thing, and so it seems like once you critique the the group, then all of a sudden you get kicked out of the group. Is that fair to say? I think it's really fair to say, and it's uh, again, it's one of those things that. I think it's where it's dangerous for us, except on those issues that Scripture is really clear about. It is dangerous when we say, if you are going to truly be a Christian in the public square, then you need to vote this way or vote for this person or this party. I mean, I say, that, I, listen, I'm a Republican. I will, I'll have a discussion all day long about why I think that's, you know, our policy positions are right. But I'm not willing to say that, if, if you're if you're going to be a Christian, that means you have to be a Republican. I just I think script. I, I just think there's nothing biblical about that position. Yeah, no, no, I agree, and I w- wouldn't say because of my work, I wouldn't say what uh, political party that I'm most aligned well, with. Um, but what I would say is that my job as a pastor is to say I, I want to make Republicans, not Democrats, but I want you to make make you the most God honoring Republicans and Democrats. I'm not trying to make you Republican, but I'm trying to make you the most God honoring Democrats. But when when you do that, all of a sudden people say, "Oh, you're you're going to the right, or you're going to the left," because no one wants their own group to be uh, called to greater levels of commitment to Christ. What you just said is when I talk about developing a political theology, that's what I mean. Hmm. It's making it the most God-honoring person of your political persuasion that you can be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to say this. Uh, Typically don't have uh, people in the political world on the podcast, but this book, Faithful Presence, uh, in a lot of ways lived up to what I was hoping it was going to be. So Scott Sauls, did you write, described you well, and uh, your friend gave good publicity to your work because I'm very impressed. I appreciate what you're doing. The book, I found it to be really helpful. And I do think it helps us develop a political theology, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, but it helps you to live out more your calling as a Christian first and foremost. So thank you so much for writing the book. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed being on it and I've enjoyed our conversation. The book doesn't actually come out until May 25th. You can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Uh, 
but it's faithful presence and comes out uh, here in about a little bit more than two months. Well, we're going to pretend like I'm waiting a few weeks before this will come out. So just whenever you hear this, imagine it's right around that time. But uh, Mr. <laughs> Governor, thank you so much. I've, did I say Mr. Governor? I feel like I had to ask one of my friends who works on the Hill or, or, uh, or at the Capitol in Austin, like, is that the right terminology for you? <laughs> did I get it right? Bill works great. Bill works great. I, I'm, I'm, uh, it's one, one thing about being out of office is you, you, quickly, uh, you quickly revert back to your, uh, the self that you've been for a long time. What, like, what is the biggest change now that you're out of office? For you, you know, uh, there, there's lots, but uh, one personally, you know, you, everywhere you go, you have security with you, and so uh-huh. in in your in my wife Chrissy did too, and so the first big change was like actually being like being by yourself, like you're never in the car by yourself, you, you know, going to a restaurant, whatever. Um, so I mean, at first it just felt weird, like oh, somebody's going to get us, and then I realized like nobody cares, you know. <laughs> uh, and then secondly, I think the other thing is that when issues come up that you really care about in the old days, you thought, okay, I can do something about this. And now you realize, okay, I'm one, I'm, I'm one of six and a half million Tennesseans that might have a little bit of voice in this. Do you feel like, is there part of you is like, hey, I, I want to get back into that? Like after you took, I know you, you know, said you weren't going to run for senator, but. Yeah, you know, I have a great appreciation for how important it is. I loved being, I was a mayor, governor. I love both of them. But also, you know, eight years as governor is the right amount. Uh, I mean, it, it, the last day I was really sad because I, it just felt like such an honor and privilege to get to do it. To, to get to do it. But also, uh, well, you know, Ecclesiastes, there, there's a time for everything and a season for every purpose under, under the sun. I felt yeah. like there had been a season and it was the season was over. Yeah. I, I, and I don't know if I should say this, but it seems kind of weird to me that you have people who are running our country who are... Uh, like late seventies, eighty years old. Like yeah. it seems like I, we don't have people like running churches that age. And I'm going like most time in churches it, we go, hey, or anything time. else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. True. It, it seems like letting go is probably a good thing for everyone. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much for giving me the chance to talk. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.